It's hard to believe that it's been five years since Me Too. The culture has moved on many times since then, but it's worth returning to the movement to take stock of what it did and did not accomplish and how it's influenced the moment we now find ourselves in. Well, my guest on the podcast today does just this in a new piece for The Spectator titled, So Much For Me Too. Phoebe Maltz-Bovey is a Toronto writer, editor, and contributing columnist at the Globe and Mail newspaper. She's also co-host of the Feminine Chaos podcast and the author of The Perils of Privilege, Why Injustice Can't Be Solved by Accusing Others of Advantage. Phoebe Maltz-Bovey is my guest today on Lean Out. Phoebe, welcome to Lean Out. Thank you so much, Tara. Thanks for having me. Great to have you on. What a great topic that we get to discuss today. It has been five years since Me Too. It feels like a lifetime ago. Take me back to 2017. What were your reactions to the movement at that time? Well, I think it was hard to say what exactly the whole point of it was going to be because it seemed at the time kind of of a piece with a couple other things that were happening. So there was the anti-Trump movement, right? The resistance, hashtag resistance, pussy hats, women's march, all of that. And there was also, especially, I guess, in the U.S., campus anti-sexual assault movement and the use of Title IX to address that. So it wasn't exactly clear where it was all going to go, but it briefly seemed like every man who had ever done anything wrong was going to lose his job. I don't think that's how that's played out. <laughs> At what point did you start feeling critical of the movement? Well, it started to, whenever there's any movement like this, I just wonder, is it actually going to do the thing it's claiming to do? And it started to seem like maybe it wasn't going to do that when I think really the turning point for me would have been the shitty media men list, which was a list that uh, there was one journalist mainly behind it, but it was sort of a collaborative effort that basically cast a lot of, it was just this list of men and their anonymously accused uh, misdeeds. And some of these things were, you know, violent crimes and others were, there was one where I remember this because it was a man who I had found kind of irritating on Twitter. He's gay, this man. He had not assaulted any woman. He had been like rude at work. <laughs> it was like, okay, didn't seem particularly <laughs> worth, you know, whatever. It just, it seemed like there was something going on where everything anybody ever did that was bad got kind of put into the same pile, which ended up both risking the reputations and jobs potentially of these men who hadn't done anything particular wrong, but also it risked making light of pretty severe offenses. So that was really, um, I guess, my main initial wariness. Mm -hmm. And this this spectator piece is basically just taking stock of what Me Too did and did not do. So I guess the first question I have is like, did it make women safer? So in terms of actually making women safer, I'm not sure, because what followed the Me Too moment was the defund the police moment. So there isn't actually any kind of sustained interest among progressives in prosecuting really much of anything. If you're talking about 
sort of where the where the zeitgeist is, I suppose. So I don't I don't know how much that has had an impact on it, but from what I looked into for that piece about statistics, it doesn't seem like suddenly now every time like there are more accusations but fewer convictions it seems like in terms of assault and then in terms of day-to-day life i think women are perhaps less likely to be asked out by a stranger does that mean being safer or just having less fun i'm not sure (laughs) and this is this is something else i wanted to talk about i mean in the piece you you basically get into these coupling categories that have been removed from polite society. And it's essentially anything with a power deferential. That could be a professor-student pairing or uh, pairings with large age gaps. Office romances also have been, you know, made taboo. Is this a net good for women? So I think it's important that sexual harassment, when it occurs, is taken seriously. I think the problem is to redefine harassment to mean basically any pursuit at all that doesn't happen specifically on a dating app. And I think that that's what's happening these days is where there is this idea that any that to approach a stranger, a strange woman in public is somehow to put her in a, a sense of danger. And I don't think that that really makes sense. I think not taking no for an answer is a problem. I think, you know, if somebody is your employee, is your act, is your current student, is something else, you know, but then this whole idea that there's this category of people who are undateable for various reasons, like if you're, so I did grad school, right? If I was a TA and a student for, what was this like, for several years, right? I could, in theory, not date anybody, right? Because they would either be, (laughs) you know... I was the student and I was the professor, right? So yeah, I, I think it, it gets a little, people should be allowed to form romantic relationships with other consenting adults. And I think that Me Too may have overshot the mark there a bit. Mm-hmm. I also hear all the time that it's had a huge chilling effect on men, that men are very scared to ask women out. There was that piece in the, I think it was on Vox or in the Times where Ezra Klein wrote about that like cold spike of fear most men will feel kind of. Um, but mm-hmm. has it has it sort of scared men off from engaging in dating, do you think? Are, is that the reason behind this so-called sex recession that we're in that we hear about all the time? Well, I doubt it's the reason behind the sex recession. I think there's, well, there's certainly COVID and the whole not going outside thing, I think put more of a damper on romance than Me Too did. And even before that, I think there were other factors like, you know, men perhaps falling behind in the workplace or in education that, you know, other people have looked into more than I have. But I do think that what you get is this kind of split where there are the men who take this all seriously and care about it and are trying to be super sensitive and maybe aren't pursuing. And then you have the men who just do not care or who even take delight in flouting whichever norms. So you're going to get men being awful in the same ways as ever who are inclined to do that. I don't think that every single man is taking this seriously. I think you might get more men towing the line. I don't know. I, I'm not sure how much of an impact it's had on the sort of day-to-day dating life, but probably some. I think there is a fear of being, you know, one of those men. Mm-hmm. 
You also make the point in the article that it's impacted the culture as a whole in pretty significant ways. And probably the most significant way is that it really did birth cancel culture. How does this dynamic now play out in other kind of larger social justice movements? Sure. So I think that's the area that I know about more because, yeah, I I have not been in the dating world since yeah long before this, but the culture wars world I have been in more than I can admit. <laughs> and um, basically, I think that this shitty media men list and that sort of approach to bad behavior really did set up a template for the racial reckoning of 2020, how that went from addressing, you know, serious, violent police crime to sort of any interpersonal awkwardness could be recast as a cancelable offense. And I think you kind of see how that just becomes this template for all kinds of interactions where the approach of somebody is rude or awkward is to hold them personally accountable for some sort of systemic issue. As if, if you get this one person fired, there's no more sexism, there's no more racism and so forth. Mm-hmm. And as you write, like the movement really had no end game for the men that it was trying to disappear. At the time, certainly it didn't seem to believe in redemption at all on any level. Like, where does that leave us as a culture? Yeah. So I think that that the lack of an end game, much like the sort of blurring of serious crime and just nasty behavior, caddish behavior, I think what that's done is both allowed for too large punishments and sort of non-punishment because there's really, there's no particular path. You have a lot of people saying that somebody like Louis C.K. shouldn't, again, have any sort of position in the world of comedy. Well, he does, you know, because like there's no particular, like he wasn't actually canceled. None of this really ultimately means anything. So I think you can get disproportionate punishments. Not that he should, I don't really have strong feelings about this. I think if he wants to go on doing comedy, that's fine. But I'm saying, I think the lack of an end game means that there's just sort of no proportionality to anything. And that it, it sort of meant more punishment in some cases and less punishment in others. Mm -hmm. And something else that the piece got at that I think is so interesting is there's uh, for kind of hardcore me too adherence, there must be a real whiplash right now because it was believe all women. Now it is Karen. And there was this idea that it was like crucial to speak up, even if you felt even slightly uncomfortable. But now women are supposed to be quiet, not take up too much space, listen and learn. And as you pointed out before, there was this idea it was you had a duty to report and to involve the criminal justice system. Now the idea is the police should actually be abolished. When do you think was the turning point? When were these core assumptions of me to smash? When was its moment up? Well, I think that a lot of what happened there really would be the shift from 2017 to 2020 and to the summer of 2020. And when all these girl boss influencer types did their mea culpas on their Instagrams and so forth about how they realized that racism is a thing and they promised to do better. And they're going to read um, Robin DiAngelo and I don't know, self-flagellate for a while symbolically. (laughs) And they, you know, have like, you know, whichever encouraging people to buy products from black owned businesses. They had, you know, their little moment where they, this was the thing they cared about. And I'm sure they care about something else now. 
And I think that at that time, it really did shift from this idea that women are always victims to that certain women are the ultimate oppressors. And there was never like a more nuanced approach to this where like, obviously, why couldn't a white woman like a white man be racist? Of course, like the the idea that that's some sort of shock that that's possible was weird. But it's clear why people found it shocking when you think about that Me Too moment of women are always victims. It's it's hell to go outside if you're a woman. <laughs> now, at the end of the book, you're talking about you're critical of the work of Christine Emba, Louise Perry, which make cases against the sexual revolution. This is probably the area we disagree on this. And you decry the nostalgic traditionalist mood of the current culture. What do you most object to there? Right. So in the end of the piece, yeah, I, I do talk about the new sex negativity. And what I I think, I mean, my stance on this is really that sex positivity, as it had been defined in the era just before Me Too, did benefit men at the expense of women, largely by just kind of its gender neutrality, saying like, well, that's, let's just be sex positive, consenting adults are adults. And yes, I think that that ignores a lot to do with, I mean, power imbalance sounds so sort of abstract, but I mean, just things like who might be unexpectedly, you know, unintentionally pregnant, who might not, you know, who Mm -hmm. might be a victim of violence more likely than the other, you know, things like that. And also just simply things of um, who has which options at which age to do, you know, largely, yes, with biology. I think that there was something with like, as much as I am a huge fan of his, when when somebody like Dan Savage will say, like, don't settle down until you're 30, I think, okay, well, that works for men in a way it doesn't work for women. Mm-hmm. Because depending what you want from life, yeah, obviously, you know, these are different, different things. So I think that there was a way that the sex positivity wasn't geared towards, you know, women. But I think that what was needed then was a sex positivity that is that takes women and feminism into account and that looks at female desire and how to sort of not to say that women or men, you know, deserve everything they desire and are entitled to it or something like that, but just to acknowledge its existence. And I think what ended up happening with me too, and then with the new sex negativity is this idea that women view sex as, and not just sex, but just sort of any sort of interaction with men as, an imposition and that it's all coming from men and that if women could have their way, men would just not, the men would just not, you know? And I think this erases what women actually experience in terms of desire and desire for men. And yeah, I think that that's where I think saying that the answer is just to figure out how to get men to behave themselves yeah, I don't think the I, I don't think a new puritanism is the answer. I think a different type of sex positivity is the answer. And I don't know that there's any movement for that, so I don't think it's happening. Mm. It's interesting. I read Emba and Perry very differently, but the instinct that you're talking about is something that I did really want to talk to you about. This idea that every, you know, women's lives would be better if men just ceased to exist or have just behaved properly. And you wrote this weekend, there was that piece in the New York Times by Amy Shern. 
You wrote about it this weekend. I also wrote about it this weekend. And the premise, there's this genre of essays from women that basically bemoan the existence of men that champion divorce and other things like that. But that really underlying it there is the idea that, that, you know, cooperation between the sexes kind of no longer exists. And with the end of Me Too, I really saw in the last five years, women speaking differently about their spouses, about the men that they're dating in like really weird ways in the last couple of years. Let's talk a little bit about that because I don't know where all that's coming from. Sure. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's another thing I've written about before um, I wrote about it. I think this was for the Globe and Mail. I wrote about ban men feminism and that, yeah, is still apparently having a moment. (laughs) It is fascinating. Like last week and or just in the past few days that there have been two different essays by women about their divorces where they've said that the problem was like heterosexual monogamous marriage rather than their personal relationships that didn't you know, unfortunately work out. But yeah, I think what's happened is that there are these, there's kind of the split between the men are always wrong team and the women are always wrong team. And it's not really healthy for anybody. And it's also obviously just neither of these things could possibly be true, (laughs) nor would they even map out in any way to actual people's interactions. So even if you come down on the side of that women on the whole have it worse than men. You could still have individual divorces or conflicts or whatever, where the woman was in the wrong. Obviously, it just seems all a little silly, but I think you get this kind of symbiotic thing between the kind of men's rights approach and this constant, like somebody commented on what I, on my newsletter post about this essay saying something like, couldn't it, like, why is it always about the men's socks? Like, can't these writers that they don't put in the laundry, like, can't these writers come up with something else? Because it just, it does seem more like it's some sort of, like, people are projecting some kind of cliches onto their own lives, rather than that they're authentically describing what's happening. Mm -hmm. People's lives are generally not exactly like these cliches. Mm -hmm. I do think, I mean, I wonder... Just to close, I'm a bit older than you. I have really seen relationships between men and women kind of collapse in in the time that I've been an adult. I do think it is a crisis. I don't really know what the solution to it is. What do you What do you see as the kind of way forward? How do men and women How do men and women get along, Phoebe? Can you answer that? Yes. Okay. I'll, I'll solve that. Um, I would say that men and women get along a lot better in real life than it can seem online. And that I think this is another one of these cases, like the idea that people don't leave their houses anymore because of COVID can seem to be the case if you're on Twitter and then you go outside and there are a lot of people outside, things like that. I think this is another such case. So I would take comfort in the fact that the the extremes of misandry, misanthropy and misogyny are all overrepresented online. Mm -hmm. That's what I would say. I think the answer is to just kind of realize that people don't hate each other as much as they might seem to online. Maybe, maybe that's the answer. (laughs) Maybe it's not as big of a crisis as all that would be my hope. (laughs) Well, that's a great place to leave it. This is such a good piece. One of many fantastic pieces. You are on fire right now, publishing everywhere. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. This was great. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. <laughs>